0: You guys accomplished at least two things. You preached my sermon and you made me cry. (laughs) But that's a good thing, right? What a wonderful Savior you would have. It's hard for us to understand the depths to the suffering that Jesus went through. We're going to be talking a little bit about that today. So it's kind of a sober (coughs) sermon but uh, this is Palm Sunday, right? (laughs) And so we know that it starts out on a high note for Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem and the people recognize him for who he is. Most of the people (coughs) reject him, but there are a few people who recognize him for the Messiah, who he is. And then we understand that they take the Lord's Supper together, there's a foot washing, and then there's the crucifixion and finally the resurrection a week from today. So we're turning a little bit different place in our Bible today, we're gonna be in Isaiah. Maybe a little bit more difficult for you to find, so usually if you take your Bible and go halfway in between, you'll end up in Psalms, and then just turn more to the right and you'll end up in Isaiah. It's a rather big book, I think it's 66 chapters. So it's something that you can easily find. We're gonna be in uh, chapter 52, starting with verse 13 and reading all the way through the 53rd chapter. Now the book of Isaiah, as we know by now, it's in the Old Testament, of course. It's a book of prophecy, it was a book written by Isaiah. The interesting thing about it is that this section that we're reading today was written probably around 740 B.C., so before Christ but it reads as though it could be from a newspaper two days after the crucifixion of Jesus. And I I think that's what is most amazing about this, is that it is a prophetic book teaching about Jesus and his suffering on the cross, and yet it was written 700 years or so before the time of Christ. This was written to a, a group of people whom God told Isaiah are deaf and blind, that he said, they will not hear your message. <coughs> preach it anyway, right? And that, doesn't that sound a little bit like today? Yeah. I mean, we have so many people who listen to the gospel, hear the gospel, we preach the gospel to them, and yet they are deaf and blind to it, and God says, preach it anyway. Because there will be people who will hear. They will be those whom the Spirit pricks their hearing and enables them to un- be able to understand and they will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because of that. This was written during a time of decline in Israel. The nations, Israel Israel had split already into new- the northern nations and then the southern nation of Judah and Benjamin. And it was written as a warning specifically to Israel and especially Judah of the judgment that was to come because the nation of Judah, if you remember, was taken into captivity in Babylon. (coughs) The 10 nations of Israel were taken by Assyria and they were scattered. And really, they never really came together together again until, um, until much, much, much later. But this really, the title of this is Jesus the Suffering Servant of God. And that's what this scripture is about. So let's go ahead and stand as we read this scripture. It's gonna be a little bit longer than normal, but uh, I think you'll recognize most of this. Uh, So I'll start in verse 13 of chapter 52. It says, Behold, my servant, this would be speaking prophetically of Jesus, shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as to one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for generations, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have here to be here today, and especially in this section of scripture which speaks of the coming Christ and the suffering servant who would suffer for the sins of his people. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and kind of have a mind shift that it requires to leave the New Testament for a week and go to the Old Testament and think about things as Jews thought about those things and how they would interpret this and how they would gain understanding from it. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have wisdom in understanding this as well so that we might become the people that you have redeemed us to be. Father, you are all powerful and we are trusting in you to enlighten us today from your word. Not only enlighten our minds, but Help our hearts to flame and come afire for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for Jesus himself, to honor him as he should be honored and to live our life with joy and excitement the way that you've called us to live. And we pray that you would help us to also have compassion for those who are less fortunate to us, for those who have not had the opportunity to hear the gospel, and that you would help us. help them to hear that gospel. Most of all, we pray that you would speak to us today, uh, words that we can take home and understand, but then share with someone else the good news of what Christ has done for us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I announced last week that I was going to be studying and preaching from Isaiah 53. And uh, once I got into it, I thought, You know, this would be better if I had a little bit longer to study this because there's so much in here. But we're going to try to glean as much as what we can and retain it. We obviously won't be able to go verse by verse, which is really what I would like to do. I'd just like to go down verse by verse through this and talk about it. But that would take a long time. It would take more than one week. And so we're going to try to get uh, an outline of what this is, what it means for us. In case you hadn't realized, and I I mentioned it earlier so you probably know, Jesus is the suffering servant who's made atonement for our sin, amen? He is a suffering servant that is spoken of here in the book of Isaiah. And it's really hard for me to understand those Jews who have the Old Testament, and they do have the Old Testament just like we have that, how they can read Isaiah 53 and not recognize that Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies and that he is the Messiah that was promised by God. And so our prayers should be for the Jewish people today that they would see the error of their ways and that they would see that, yes, Jesus Christ met all of these criteria, and yes, he is the Messiah who is to come, and he is worthy of their worship and their honor. Would you pray that with me? (laughs) Not right now, but be praying that for the people of Israel. And... Prophecy also tells us that at the end of the time the Jewish people will return to to God and they will accept the one whom they have pierced. But today we're speaking about Jesus as the suffering servant who has made atonement for our sin. And you might be asking, well, what exactly does atonement mean? Well, in the Hebrew language, the word atonement actually means to cover. And so an atonement is a covering for our sin. It's something that does away with our sin, but it's specifically a covering for our sin. And we'll get into a little bit more detail about that a little bit later. But in the very beginning of this, I just wanted to talk about a few things that are brought out in the first part of the scripture that we read. And that is, why did Jesus come? So I know you have an outline and you have one, two, three, four. This is going to be under number one. There's going to be four things about why did Jesus come and why did he served as a suffering servant. And the very first thing is that he came to live wisely and we find that in chapter 52 verse, verse 13. He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He acted wisely and Jesus must have acted wisely in order that we might be able to have and, and obtain his righteousness. He himself had to be righteous so that he could die for us and we obtain his righteousness. And we've talked about this before. We realize that what makes us as Christians acceptable before God is not our own righteousness, but it's a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. Amen? Amen. He lived the perfect life. And when we trust him by faith, that righteousness is given or imputed to us. Imputed is a fancy word that just says it's given to us. Given is a little bit weaker than what imputed actually means. It, it means that uh, it, is, it becomes a part of us. His righteousness becomes a part of us. And so firstly, he came to live wisely, and obviously he did that. We see that in his righteous life, but we also see it in the way he conducted himself amongst the people. I mean, several different times people wanted to come and make him king, that would have been very tempting to have done that, right? Let's just get it over with, just let me be king now. And uh, fortunately, Jesus said, no, I have a different thing that I'm trying to accomplish. I'm trying to accomplish dying for the sins of my people. And so we will have to put off me being recognized as king. And right now I will live wisely and I will do the right thing. I will, serve as a sacrifice for those who will be my people. We know eventually also, second thing about why Jesus came is that he is to be highly exalted. Amen, he's to be highly exalted. That's in all times, but especially during the time during the time of Isaiah, that this coming Messiah is to be highly exalted, but that when he actually comes on this earth, that and he performs all the things that God the Father asked him to do that he would be highly exalted. And we've read about about this recently in Philippians chapter 2, right? We've seen where he said, it says in verse 7, it says that Jesus emptied himself, right? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is to be highly exalted. Both of these things go together. And what I mean by both of them is that On the cross, Jesus Christ put us above all. We we have a song that we're singing about that, right? The choir is anyway. You may not have heard it yet. But the choir is going to be singing a song song that talks about above all and that on the cross, he put us and he loved us and he put us above all. Now, if if we just kind of left it like that, it's not really good doctrine because there's another thing that Jesus and God put above all, and that is him being exalted and him being glorified. So both those things work together. Both those things are above all kind of things. His love for us and his sacrifice for us, he placed that above all, but also his exaltation and the glory that he receives for being that sacrificial lamb. And I hope that makes sense because you cannot have one without the other. They both work together. God's exaltation, Jesus being exalted and being high and lifted up and glorified and honored and his love for us, they both go together. And so he is to be highly exalted. He is to live wisely. And then he is to be crucified. This section of scripture clearly says that he is to be crucified. We, We get this because of the description of jesus in verse uh, 2014 it says that his appearance will be marred and his body beaten and bloody his body will be so disfigured that it will be unrecognizable and no longer even look like a man so verse 14 of 52 it says as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of, man, of mankind. So we will talk a little bit more about him being crucified, but remember that he is to, came to live wisely. He came to be highly exalted. He came to be crucified. And then finally, under this section one, number four, to cleanse and redeem a people from many nations. That's been his goal all along. That's why he created the earth, is to somehow become, uh, for us to become a redeemed people that he can have a relationship with. And so we see that, I think it's in verse 15. 15 says, so shall shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand so there will come a time where kings and nations will hear the gospel that's what that's talking about and they shall so be sprinkled that they will be cleansed from their sins. so that's what the sprinkling is about it's the it's the blood of Jesus cleansing the people of the nations now of course they have to hear right they have to hear in order to be heard So this is where our part plays. We have to be willing to go to the nations. We have to be willing to send people to the nations. We need to do our part here at home as well and share the gospel with people so that they can hear the gospel and uh, and be cleansed. Um, Just like the scripture here says that they are to be cleansed from their sins. So why did Jesus come? Four reasons, to live wisely, to be highly exalted, to be crucified and to cleanse and redeem a people from many nations. This had to be a shock, right, to the people of Israel? (laughs) It it really should not have been a shock to them. But they became, especially in Jesus' day, they became a little bit uh, high on themselves, thinking that they were the chosen people of God. They were, but they were not the only chosen people of God. God would soon branch out and through the Apostle Paul begin reaching the nations and the Gentiles for Christ. And so it's not just the Jews, as Danny said this morning in Sunday school, but the gospel is open to all people. All people have the opportunity if they hear the gospel message. And so that should answer why did Jesus come? But there's some other things, of course, that are talked about in the scripture that we need to talk about. It would not be easy for him to come, would it? It was not easy for him to come. In fact, Jesus, the suffering servant, suffered rejection most of his life. Even as a baby, he was in a sense rejected for being the king that he was. But the coming of the suffering servant was predicted uh, but he was rejected as the arm of the Lord was rejected. Now, this arm of the, uh, of the Lord in verse number one is a little bit tricky, but let's just read that again. It said, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no former majesty, that we should look at him. And so, this arm of the the Lord, I think we can see by the context is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's another name, it's another symbolic name for Jesus Christ. And when you think of Jesus Christ, uh, where is Jesus Christ right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, right? You always see when you see the Father and Jesus, You always see Jesus at the right hand. It is the right hand, which is symbolic of power and authority. And so Jesus has been given all power and authority. And so this arm of the Lord has been given uh, to the people, and yet they have rejected him. They've rejected the arm of the Lord when they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, Well, I thought Jesus had many, many followers. Well, he did in the beginning, right? He had many followers, especially those who liked to eat, right? <laughs> Just to put it bluntly, those who liked to eat, those who liked the free food, uh, would follow along. And many of them, I believe, were true believers. But there was a situation in John chapter 6 where Jesus really got on to this crowd because. They only came across the lake to see Jesus because they thought they could get food from him. And he was offended by that. And it's clear that he was offended because he began to say some things like, unless you drink my blood, unless you eat my body, you have no part with me. And the people didn't realize what he was talking about. What he was talking about is that you do not get your contentment from these loaves and these fishes. You should have your contentment in me and doing the will, of the will of the Lord. And so he said, unless you drink my blood, unless you eat my body, referring to the Lord's supper, right? That's referring to the Lord's supper. Unless you find your contentment in me, then this only proves that you are not true believers. You are not following me. You're following the bread line. And so he got, he got very upset with them. And, but yet at that time, it says the disciples who were following him or foe disciples, whatever you want to call them, uh, it says they, think, well, they thought, well, he's going a little bit crazy. We're no longer going to follow him. And so they stopped following him. And many people stopped following Jesus, especially at the end of his ministry. Uh, I had some other things during his trial, who was there to stand up for him during his trial? No one, right? Even Peter, even Peter was told by Jesus that you will deny me three times before the cock crows. And that's exactly what happened. Peter was not even there. At the Garden of Gethsemane, how many stood with him? No one, right? Jesus asked them to pray for him, and they fell asleep. and then shortly after that, Judas came and he was taken into um, taken by the guards, and that's when his trial started. He came unexpectedly as a child, and he was rejected then. There was nothing about his appearance that was attractive or majestic. We see that in the scripture. So whatever pictures you see of Jesus, those are wrong. (laughs) They're most likely wrong. We have no pictures of Jesus. It's probably a very good thing that we have no pictures, no busts, no statues, because we would probably try to worship them rather than the one true God. But I think that's kind of important because remember uh, when, Remember when the Israelites wanted to have a king? They wanted to have a king just like all the other nations. Once again, the people of God offend the God of heaven. This offended God as well because he said, I am your king. But because you have asked, I will give you a king. And they wanted a king just like all the other ones. In other words, they wanted the biggest, tallest, strongest person they could get And that ended up being King Saul, who ended up being a bad king, right? He had his good parts, but he ended up being a bad king because it was the appearance that they thought was important. And when God selected his next king, he said, this king will be a king after my own heart. And so Jesus was rejected and partly maybe it was rejected because he didn't look special. He didn't look like Saul. He didn't look like a mighty warrior. The appeal of Jesus was his words and his authority, how he spoke and taught with authority. But he was a man that was rejected by men. He was a man acquainted acquainted with sorrows and grief. And he experienced himself, sorrows and grief. I, I think especially of the death of Lazarus and how he delayed that for several days and then Lazarus was eventually passed away and he'd been in the tomb and Jesus, if you remember, cried for him. He felt true sorrow and he felt true grief, even though he knew what was going to happen. He was a man acquainted with sorrows and a grief and later on, on the cross, he became acquainted with our sorrows and grief as he paid the penalty for our sins. He was a man that was rejected by men. It says it several times in our text. And he was not given the esteem that he deserved. In the end, few stood by him at his death. He suffered rejection, ultimately and finally. And finally, even on the cross, he was rejected by God the Father, wasn't he? And God turned his back on him, so to speak, as he took upon the sin of the world. Can we even begin to imagine what Jesus went through? I can't can't imagine. I can't imagine physically, let alone having a father turn his back on me. And uh, it must've been terrible. So Jesus was rejected by men. Jesus also, the suffering servants, bore the penalty for man's sin. He suffered for us. But many during the time of Jesus felt that like his execution as a, was, as a criminal was just. So in verses four and five, it says, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I read it down a little bit further than what I should have, but he suffered for us. The truth is that he was innocent, amen? amen. He was innocent. Even during his trial, they could find nothing that he was guilty about. He He's really tried for blasphemy, but the, his claims to be God and his claims to be the Messiah were true. So he was innocent, but he died for our griefs and our sorrows. He, he paid the penalty for our transgressions transgressions and our sins. And why did he do this? Verse six, verse five. He did it to bring peace and with God and healing. He did it to bring peace with God and healing. To save us from all going astray. And you know me, I always try to pick up a key verse out of the scripture that I'm reading. And to me, it's Isaiah 53.6. I'm sure a very familiar verse to you. One of the verse, verses I learned in the Old Testament, and uh, the reason I learned it is because my disciples said, you, if, in case you come up across someone who is Jewish, you need to be able to share the gospel without using the New Testament. <laughs> so we learned this verse about what Jesus has done for us. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's a beautiful verse outlining the very gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of us have gone astray. All of us have turned the other way away from God. We've not been honoring him as he should be honoring him. We've been going our own way, doing our own thing. And we have turned everyone, not just a few, but everyone to his own way. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And this is not God's will and it's not the best thing for us. Best thing for us is to be doing God's will. And so the Lord laid on him, speaking of this servant, the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so we can relate to the verse in Romans. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He saves us by bearing our sins for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Very good news. Finally, Jesus, the suffering servant, suffered willingly, but unjustly. He was the sinless son of God He willingly and he silently suffered harsh treatment just like the lamb led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He could have, right? He could have opened his mouth, could have called 10,000 angels to come down and get him off the cross and all of his pain and suffering would have been gone. He could have in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed a prayer. He said, let this cup pass from me. He prayed to God that. This cup of his wrath, which was coming upon him, Jesus said, "Let this cup pass from me." Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. He never gave up on that. He did not open his mouth. He did not complain. He suffered for for our sins. He willingly suffered and uh, he willingly suffered an illegal arrest. He willingly suffered an illegal trial and he willingly suffered an illegal execution. He was cut off, put to death for the transgression of God's people. He willingly suffered a burial with the wicked even though he was the sinless son of God. What a savior. It's what my old pastor would say. What a savior that we have. What a Lord, what a savior. And so what has Jesus accomplished for us? Well, very much, very much for us to be thankful for, for us to be joyous about. He became a substitute sacrifice for sin. And that, that statement really is kind of weak. <laughs> he became a substitute sacrifice for us, right? Sin is not some, uh, something that stands outside of us. Sin is within us. It is us who deserves the wrath and punishment, not something out here called sin. It is us. And so he became a substitute sacrifice for us. And that's why it's called in theological terms, I've used this term before, a penal substitutionary atonement. So it's a covering of our sin. That's what atonement means. It's penal in the sense that it pays the penalty. For our sin, we all incur a penalty for our sin. We deserve hell, but He paid the penalty for that. And substitutionary means He does it as a substitute. In other words, He does it, but it's accounted to our, it's credited to our account when we receive Him by faith. It's just an amazing thing. He produces many offspring, many righteous. Verse 15 talks about that, the sprinkling of the nation is that he didn't just die and nothing happens, right? It accomplishes something. His death on the cross not only makes salvation possible, it makes it inevitable for those who believe and trust in Christ. That's the sprinkling of the many nations and the many people who will believe in him. He conquered death and brought satisfaction to everyone involved. He conquered death and brought satisfaction to everyone involved. In other words, everyone is going to be judged justly. And everything is going to turn out the way it is supposed to. God's wrath is going to be satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. Judgment for the unbelievers will be satisfied in a place called hell, unless they repent. Jesus justified many. This means that legally, people who place their faith and trust in Christ, their verdict is not guilty. Not guilty. You might say, of, not guilty of what? Anything. <laughs> we are not guilty of anything. Praise the Lord, right? We're not guilty of anything. That's amazing but that was purchased by Jesus on the cross. And because of these things, he is honored as a great victor. He will divide the wealth of his conquest with the strong, which are us, the believers. I I still can't get over that. It's one thing to be forgiven, but it's another thing that because of Christ's righteousness, we will be given a portion of his reward. And I don't know what that's going to be, but it's going to be incredible. The last point that I want to make here, the results of Jesus' suffering, is that he arose from the dead. Amen? Amen. He arose from the dead. He, he died for something, but he didn't stay there. He arose from the dead. And he offers salvation to whomever would hear the gospel and believe and repent. I heard something on the internet, not often that I quote the internet or post something from the internet but I, think, I believe this is scriptural, and I believe it is true, and it's going to be my final appeal here this morning. It's very common sense, but it's also very biblical. It said people who die, young or old, don't become angels. Not everyone who dies go to heaven. Jesus said there would be few who go to heaven in Matthew 7, 14. Dad may pray for you, but Dad can't put you in heaven. You may join a church, but membership can't get you into heaven. Being baptized won't get you into heaven. A minister may speak at your funeral, but a minister can't preach you into heaven. Doing a lot of good things is great, but won't gain access to heaven. There's only one way for your journey on earth to end well. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Repent of your sin, believe on Jesus, follow him, and leave this world clinging to him in faith, knowing he has you in his hands. His grace is sufficient. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time We thank you for your word, we thank you for your unbelievable sacrifice. And it is, in a sense, unbelievable to us that you would be so kind and generous and so sacrificial. But we know that your Holy Spirit works within us to help bring that faith to life. And we pray that you would do that now. To all of us who are hearing this, many of us I know are Christians, but we need encouragement from time to time. And let this promise of yours that you will bring us to life and that you will give us eternal life encourage us today to live our life fully for you. Possibly there's someone here today who does not know Christ, has never received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Help them to understand the difference between doing good things and trying to gain heaven that way and what it really means to be a Christian and that's to, by grace, accept you merely upon faith and trusting in you and repenting of our sins. Father, I pray that that message is clear today and that we would act upon it. Thank you once again for all you've done for us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.